imagine myself being Peter, standing there next to the column, seeing Jesus utter those words, I am. And I imagine myself in that moment seeing Jesus being beaten by the Sanhedrin. And in that moment it occurred to me, I want to see Jesus with the right theology and expressing the right emotion. And tonight I hope that that's your heart too. I hope that's why you're here. Because you want to meet, you want to encounter the real Jesus. Maybe you've been a follower of Christ for 20 years. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with God. But I pray that tonight our hearts is that we would meet the real Jesus, that we would have an encounter with Him, not the boyfriend Jesus, not the prosperity Jesus, the real Jesus. And in order to do that tonight, we're going to turn in the Word to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and if tonight is your first time, I want to bring you back up to speed as we turn there. We're going to be starting in verse 4. And we've been taking a journey together as a church through the book of Luke. It has been an incredible journey. We've been going verse by verse for a long time now, like two years, I lost count. And as we've been going, we have been truly seeing with clear eyes who Jesus is. And over the course of the last few weeks, we have been learning about the trials of Jesus. And in order to understand these trials, in order for me to bring you kind of back to speed here, I want to encourage you to see these trials happening in two primary phases. The first phase is the Jewish trials. And those trials happen in three waves. The first wave is when we see Jesus taken to the home of Ananias. And after that, he is taken to the house of Caiaphas where the Sanhedrin has gathered. Now, Ananias and Caiaphas would have lived in the same house because Ananias was the previous high priest and Caiaphas was the current high priest. And so Jesus goes in there in the middle of the night, which, by the way, there could be no legal trial that happened in the middle of the night. Jesus is tried. And he's tried for his claim that he is the king of the Jews. And so they charge Jesus with blasphemy and the court, a trumped up court says, this Jesus is guilty. Now in order to make their case legit, they have to have a trial in the morning. So at 5 a.m., the third wave of these trials, the Jewish trials, happens. And in that trial, they legitimize this case against Jesus, charging him with blasphemy for saying that he is the king of the Jews. Now, after the Jewish trials, there has to be some more trials because what they're seeking against Jesus is capital punishment. They're seeking the death penalty. And the only way that they can have the death penalty for Jesus now is if the Jews take Jesus to the Roman government. You see, in John 18 we learn that it was only the Romans, because of their rule over the Jewish people, that could execute capital punishment on a person. And so now we see this, the chief priest and we see the Sanhedrin take Jesus before Pilate. That's where we were last week. And they are seeking to have Jesus put to death. Now, it gets kind of interesting here because as they take Jesus before Pilate, what we see is that they change the verdict that they've given Jesus. You see, before they had charged him a blasphemy, right? Well, 
Pilate is not going to be interested in hearing a trial that has to do with religion. So this charge of blasphemy for Pilate is not going to be something that he is going to pursue for the death penalty. And so the Jews now must concoct a new charge against Jesus that will be legitimized to the point where Pilate could put Jesus to death. And so last week, as Mark incredibly taught this story, there were three things, there were three charges that the Jews bring against Jesus. They say that he's subverting our nation, that he is telling people that they shouldn't pay their taxes, which we all know is completely not true. Jesus never says that. And then he says that Jesus is claiming to be Christ king of the Jews. So Pilate listens to the claims, and he asks Jesus the question, which, by the way, this is the question that Pilate is most interested in, because the charges that they're bringing against Jesus now have moved to being primarily political. And so as they say that Jesus is subverting the nation, they're saying that Jesus is trying to start a political uprising against you. And Jesus is telling people that they shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. And you know what, Pilate? Jesus is saying that He is King. And in His kingship, He is, char- he is challenging you politically. And that would be the thing that Pilate would be most interested in because Pilate is a man of pride. Pilate is a man that wants to protect his authority, to protect his territory. And so he looks back at Jesus and he asks the question, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus responds by saying, You say so. Now why does Jesus respond by saying, You say so? Why doesn't he just say, Yes, I'm the king of the Jews, or, you know, No, I'm not the king of the Jews. He says, You say so. The reason that Jesus uses that language is because the way that the Jews are charging Jesus as being king is not the type of kingship that Jesus has come to establish. He tells us his kingdom is not of this world. And so as he answers Pilate, he's saying, yes, I am king, but not exactly as the Jews are saying. I have not come here to take away your power, Pilate. I have not come to undermine your authority. But at the same time, he doesn't say no Because the reality is, Jesus is king of the Jews. And so he responds by saying, you say so. Now that gets us to verse 4. I want you to check this out. Read with me. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So Pilate now, responding to the charges, these three charges that the Jews have brought against Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he says, so this man is supposed to somehow be challenging my authority? I I don't think so. Like, where's his army? Where are all the men with their swords and with their shields? He's standing here before me alone. He's been beaten. I don't feel any threat. This this man is has some kind of political uprising where he's trying to overthrow us. I don't think that this man is threatening my kingship. And so he comes back to them and he says, I find no basis to charge this man. Now this is a very, very important piece of Scripture. What we see here, as Luke writes, is he begins to articulate a case that is very important, that Jesus is not deserving of death. 
That is a very, very important piece of theology. In fact, so important as Luke writes this letter to Theophilus and to his Gentile readers that he re-emphasizes it over and over and over. If you look with me again in in, uh, Luke 23, verse 14, and we'll have these up here on the slide. And this is again, Pilate talking, he says, And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to a rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Pilate again saying, I find no reason to charge this man of the crimes that you're saying that he's committed. And again in verse 22, For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and I will release him. Why does Luke continue to emphasize for us that Jesus here is not deserving of a crime on the warrant of something he's done politically? And again, it moves past just criminal innocence as it pertains to government, and it goes further in all the New Testament, in all of Scripture, that all of the writers that are writing want to communicate something to the world then and to the world today. And this is that Jesus Christ is innocent. Jesus is righteous. He's blameless. This is what Paul was speaking of as in 2 Corinthians, as he writes this letter to the church of Corinth. And he takes great measures and great care to tell the church that Jesus Christ is innocent. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying here that Christ has no sin. He's blameless. He's innocent. Again, we see Peter writing the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. Peter wants us, he wants the world, he wants his readers to understand that Jesus committed no sin. He's righteous, he's blameless. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Do you get the weight of those words as you read them? Blameless, holy, pure, set apart. There is no sin in Jesus. Jesus does not deserve death. Even a Gentile leader can see it. Pilate. He says, this man does not deserve death. Why is it so important tonight for you and I that we see the innocence of Christ and we understand that He is not deserving of death? There's many reasons. But there's one reason tonight that I want to focus on. It is called the doctrine of justification. And if you're taking notes right now, I want to encourage you to write some of this down. This is what justification is. Whenever God calls sinners to Himself and He begins the work of regeneration, He gives sinners eyes that are able to see Him in who He is in His glory. And He gives us faith that causes us to repent of sin and to yearn for God more than we yearn for anything else. But what's left to be done is dealing with 
sin. You see, in order for God to be just as the one who justifies, He must deal with the sin issue that we have. And so in justification, God does a legal act in which He forgives sinners for sin and He credits righteousness to us, which allows Him to be just in having a relationship with us. Now, we all usually get the part about forgiving sins. We all talk about, you know, Jesus forgives our sins when we come to Him. But there's something very, very important that we need to see here. And so I want to turn your attention to this slide that I have up about justification. Now, I took this from a guy named Wayne Grudem, who I think explains this very well in this slide. You see, this first circle on the top left, follow with me here, this represents us. When we come into this world, we have sin imputed, given into our lives through the sin of Adam. And so all of us are born with a sin nature. We can all agree right here, right now, that we all have sin. So that's what this represents. Now, as God forgives us of sin, what He's doing is He's taking Jesus, right? Our sin is given over to Jesus as Jesus dies on the cross, That's why we say that our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus because God takes our sin and He imputes it to Jesus. Jesus dies for sin. So, our sin can be forgiven through Christ who died for sin. That would leave us morally neutral. That means that our sin is gone. Okay? Now, there's an issue here. Being morally neutral still does not give us the right to be able to be reunited in our relationship with God. Something else must happen. Moral neutrality is not okay in God's sight. We must have righteousness. And so there's a double imputation here that happens where our neutrality is given righteousness. See those plus signs? They represent righteousness. So... How do we get righteousness? Like, where does that come in? Check this out. If Jesus is not righteous, if He does not live a blameless life, then when He grows, goes to the cross and He's punished, then His death would be justified because of His sin. Jesus must live a righteous life so that He can take our sin to the cross and He can cause us to be morally neutral. But then, the second part of this, which we so often forget, is that then Christ's righteousness has to be given to us. Do you see it? So then, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, then God can look at us and you know what He sees? He sees Jesus. The righteousness of God. That's what happens in justification. So, if Jesus is not innocent, then when He dies for sin, or when He dies for sin, He would be deserving of punishment, and then He would have no righteousness that would be able to be imputed to us so that we could be restored to our relationship with God. There's many theologians here who have wrestled with Scripture and wrestled with God. And when they have begun to see justification clearly, when I see this theology clear me, clearly, you know what it causes me to want to do? Rejoice. Rejoice in the work of Christ on the cross. 
Thank you, Jesus, for living a life of innocence, dying a death that I deserved so I could be righteous in the face of God. That's why Jesus is innocent. Let's continue here. Verse 5. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by His teaching. He started in Galilee and He has come all the way here. Now, as we continue on in this passage, the crowd becomes a lot more urgent. In fact, the ESV uses that language. It says the crowd becomes urgent. And now they are accusing. They're saying, Jesus is stirring up the people. Pilate, how can you say now that you find no guilt in him? You find no charge. They press and they push and they continue. They want to see Jesus headed towards the cross. And so Pilate now, He's kind of getting put in a hard place. We're going to talk about that hard place in a second. But when he hears the word Galilee, the wheels in his mind begin to work and it sets up an opportunity for Pilate. Continue to read with me in verses 6 and 7. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Jesus or uh, Pilate, I'm sorry, hears now that Jesus is a Galilean, and so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I don't want to deal with this. And so he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod would have been in Jerusalem during this time because of the Passover. Herod, this Herod, is the same Herod Herod Antipas, that is son of Herod the Great. If you remember earlier on in the life of Jesus, that this is the same Herod who put John the Baptist to death. This is not a nice man. He's ruthless. He's prideful. He's arrogant. And now we see Pilate sending Jesus over to Herod. Now, a lot of people have different reasons for why they would say that Pilate decides to do this, why he decides to send Jesus over to Herod. One of those reasons is that they say that Herod was more experienced in dealing with Jewish law, and so in some senses, he's just entrusting Herod to be able to take care of this, maybe better than what he could have taken care of it. Other people say that because there was animosity between Pilate and Herod, Pilate used this as a chance to be able to restore his relationship with Herod because he would be saying, you know what? This is really my call, but I'm going to trust you on this, Herod. And so by doing this, it would show Herod that somehow Pilate is trusting him. But there's another option. There's another part of this, and maybe it's a little bit of those, but here's what I think. Right now, Pilate has three different options. We'll call them A, B, and C. First, A, this is what he could do. He could stand by his judgment of saying, I find no guilt in this man He could stand up for Jesus and he could say, Jewish leaders, Sanhedrin, I don't care what you say, I'm going to release this man. That's option A. If he does that, he is going to start a massive uprising. They're possibly going to go around him and try to have Pilate taken out of his position of authority. There's already stuff going on. Pilate doesn't want that. So here's option B. He can just go ahead and say right now, okay, Death penalty. 
Let's go right now to the cross. If he does that, he's working against his conscience. He sees right here in his own eyes, in his own mind, even though he's a pagan Gentile, he sees that this man is not worthy of the charge that's been given to him. So option C is to become indifferent. Option C is to not deal with the issue at all. And that's exactly what I believe Pilate is doing here. He sees that Jesus is from Galilee and and he finds even though he could take care of the punishment, he says, here's an opportunity. I'm going to send this guy over to Herod. I'm going to let Herod make the call so I don't have to deal with this situation. So let's see what happens when he gets over to Herod. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he was wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. Now, as you first begin to read this, if I hadn't already ruined the character of Herod for you, like you're reading this in verse 8 and you're like, oh, wait a second, Herod saw Jesus and he was like really pleased because he was wanting to see Jesus for a long time. It's almost like, hey, for a second there's this glimmer of hope for Jesus because here's a man that's pleased and he's been wanting to see the Savior for a long time. It's like we can wish for a moment to believe that Herod was hungry to meet the Savior because in the face of Christ, he wanted to experience the glory of God. That all changes really quickly, doesn't it? You continue to read verse 8 there. Then it says, he had heard about him, and surely he's been hearing the stories of Jesus being from Galilee. He's been hearing about the miracles, and he's been hearing about the healings. He's heard about the teachings, and he says here that he has been hoping to see him perform a miracle. Dude, the reality about Herod is that he doesn't give a flip about Jesus. All he wants in Jesus is he wants to milk him for some miracles. He wants Jesus to come up into his court and he wants him to be his little court gesture puppet so he can experience from Jesus what he is hoping to experience. What Herod has is not a desire to experience the glory of God through Jesus Christ. He has self-love. He has infatuation with Jesus on the premise of experiencing a miracle. And there's no way that I could fully be able to bring you to the place of the story but I think the passion of the Christ does an awesome job of really portraying Herod here so I want you guys to just check out this clip for just a second
You know, as I watch that clip, I think the reason that that particular clip connects with me is this. We see Herod here desiring to have Jesus in his presence, but it is not on the basis of wanting to see and savor God. It is on the basis that he wants to delight in the miracles of God through Christ. That's his desire. And so often, as I look at Herod and I think, what a despicable dude. Like, what a punk. He's just got so much arrogance and so much pride to bring this Jesus into his presence and to want to work some type of miracles so he can be entertained, so he can get what he wants. As I see that, there is a brokenness that comes over my heart because so many times I have been that guy. What do I mean by that? Every time that we go to God through Christ and we desire to have some type of gift, and that desire is not based upon the foundation that we want to experience the glory of God through the gifts that He gives in the Gospel, but we want something for our own selfish desires, we are no different than Herod. That is exactly who we are. What are some of those things that lead us to the gospel of experiencing the glory of God? Miracles, healing, prosperity, spiritual gifts, the church. We desire to have all these things, but when we desire them on the basis of our selfishness, of our self-love, of our self-centeredness, and it's not based upon wanting to experience the glory of God, we're no different than Herod. And that's exactly what John Piper is speaking about. And there's a book that I recently read, and I talked about it last week, kind of about this same thing. What I did was I just put a direct link to this book in your bulletin. You can get online, and you can download this thing, and you can read it yourself. And I want to encourage you to read it, because it has helped me a ton. But in this quote, I want you to see this. The aim of the Gospel is not mainly to give us God's gifts. That's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to be your puppet. This is what it is. But to give us God. All of His gifts are good, but in and through them, they all, the aim is to see more of God's glory and to savor more of His infinitely beautiful moral perfection displayed in the Gospel. That is the purpose of gifts. Now, if you've been like me, and you've been this way before, you've come to Christ, and you've prayed, and you've asked for things, but it only centers 
on you. I want you to have some examples of what that must look like. And some of these, I'm going to be honest with you, some of them might hit very, very close to home. But in order for you to understand what I'm saying here, check out this. There's a mom. And this mom has a son. It's the only family she has. Dad's out of the picture. That's all she's got. And this son is stricken with a horrible case of cancer. It's a tragedy. And she finds out that her son has weeks, maybe months to live. And so what begins to happen is this mom cries out to God. Amen begins to plead and to cry out to God for God to do a healing, for God to do a miracle, for God to do a work. And not only is the mom crying out, but then others begin to cry out. Other extended family cry out. Churches cry out. A community is crying out. Everybody is crying out for God to do a miracle and to heal this son of cancer. And you know what? God answers. God does a miracle. And by the way, in every healing, it's God. In every death, it's God. God does the work. The Son is healed. And then what happens, and this is how you know, when the desire is of self, it's of preserving life for selfish reasons, as soon as the healing occurs, mom begins to celebrate more in the healing and less in the glory of God. And the Son is celebrating in the healing and not in the glory of God. And the church is celebrating completely in the healing and not in the glory of God. And when that happens, it is sure proof that it has been all about the healing. And it's not been about the glory of God. Here's another example. Let me give you this example. What about... Let's say a dad. And this dad has a large family. And he works very hard, but the reality is there's sometimes where he struggles to be able to provide financially what he needs for his family. And so the end of the month is coming. And he begins to realize that he's not going to have enough money to be able to pay the bills. And he's not going to be able to have enough money to put food on the table. So what he begins to do is he prays. And he prays and he prays. He prays for God to provide financially so that his family will be able to eat. And God doesn't provide. God doesn't provide the extra money that it's going to be able to take to go to the store and to be able to provide the food. And so for those few weeks that the family goes without, they have to eat like white bread and peanut butter. I had to do that several times. My dad would make for us like, you know, white bread sandwiches with a piece of cheese and mayonnaise and that would be our meal. This family has to go without for weeks. But they get by. And at the end of that whole journey, the father becomes bitter towards God. Not still saying, God, to you be the glory. May you be honored. May you teach me what I need to learn through this sacrifice and through this experience. But instead becomes bitter at God because His pleas weren't answered. Instead of seeing hunger as sometimes a gift of God, 
to be able to bring you to the place where you have nothing else except hunger. And so you begin to be satisfied in God instead of being satisfied in food. Do we know that hunger can be a gift? Do we know that suffering can be a gift? Because gifts aren't only miracles. Gifts aren't only money. Gifts are everything that brings us to a place where we experience God through the face of Jesus Christ. That's a gift. Our ultimate need is to learn how to become not satisfied in health, not satisfied in money, not satisfied in anything else except God. And we become most satisfied in God, we will experience the most joy that we could ever experience. Isn't it beautiful that our greatest joy and our greatest good in being satisfied in God can be the same thing? That's beautiful. Another example, and I'm going to bring a very real personal example to, to you from my life. My wife and I have been having a conversation about heaven. And in our conversation, we're, we're sharing and we're talking through the reality of not knowing each other in heaven. And that's a hard thing to deal with, isn't it? Come on now. Let's think about it. We have relationships in this lot that are so valuable. Thinking that you wouldn't know your spouse in heaven. And so, as we're struggling through this, I continue to be brought to this reality. If I am most concerned in heaven with knowing my wife, then I am knowing God and glorifying Him, then all heaven is to me is just another gift that I am getting self-centered and wrapped up in. Heaven is not there for me to play golf and to live life with my wife forever. Heaven is there to have an eternity of glorifying God and finding our ultimate satisfaction in Him. If we are so concerned with heaven of not doing all the things that we want to do and experiencing all the things that we want to experience, then we have a very shallow view of God and we are manipulating heaven. We must find our joy in God, not in the gifts. All of the gifts lead us up to God as the same way that the rays of sun that come down from the sun lead us to knowing the bigness of the sun. That is understanding God. Let's keep going here. Verses 9 to 11. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And like I shared just a moment ago, you know, it's the response that always clues us in on the true desire that we had in the pleading to God. Here it is, Herod, who at one moment was pleased to see Jesus. Jesus stands there silently, and what does Herod do? He's done. He's going to allow the teachers of the law to continue to accuse Jesus in His presence. He's going to mock Jesus. He's going to allow His soldiers to mock Jesus now because Jesus doesn't come in and give Him what He wants. It was completely centered on Herod. It had nothing to do with God. 
That's how we know when our desires are namely centered on us instead of centered on the glory of God. Now, as Jesus is silent here, I want to draw your attention back to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, 7. His silence is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So He did not open His mouth. Jesus says nothing as He's there before Herod. I believe that a big part of that, as it is a fulfillment of prophecy, but he also knows Herod's heart. He knows that Herod doesn't want him there to really perform a miracle so he can know God. He knows that Herod has completely self-centered reasons in saying, show me a miracle. Now one other thing about this Jesus being silent, and I thought about this as it related to me personally, I don't know if you can relate to this, but in the times that we're being accused, when the accuser is right, it's a lot easier to be quiet, isn't it? You're like, yeah, dude, I did that. (laughs) You got me pegged. But when the accuser is wrong, when we're being falsely accused, it's lies, it's not true. Is it easy to be silent? You want to stand up on a table and you want to scream. You want to make it known that you are innocent. And so as you see Jesus here being silent, this silence is not like this moment of cowardice. This silence is a moment of strength. As Jesus is standing in the mouth of the storm, standing strong by remaining silent, fulfilling the words that would come about Him. If you or I or Jesus here, it would be so much easier to scream out, I am innocent. But he doesn't. Verse 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. As we wrap up the passage tonight, as I first read that, I thought, well, that's cute. Herod and Pilate are friends now. Great. What does that even mean? You know? They just put Jesus to death. <laughs> because we're going to see here, Pilate, after all these three times where he says that Jesus is innocent, he's still going to succumb to the power of the Jews. Now he's going to say that he washes his hands and that he doesn't want anything to do with him. But here's the deal. Indifference, while sometimes it may seem like Pilate's a good guy here and he's doing the right thing, indifference will lead to hell. As I think about that, I think about a lot of us who know people who aren't necessarily antagonistic towards Christ. But at the same time, they're completely indifferent in reality. Like, they're not standing up saying that I want to take a stand for Jesus, but at the same time, They're not saying, you know what, I completely reject Jesus. It's kind of just like they have this neutrality about them. And in our culture, in our world today, like we've begun to believe that neutrality is a good thing. We call that open-mindedness. I'll tell you what that is. That is a destiny to hell. When you don't take a stand for Christ, 
and profess Him as Lord and as Savior of your life, which in this moment is the greatest need for Pilate, being spiritually neutral is being completely dead. In the same way, you look at Herod. Here's Herod. It seems like he wants to know Jesus. It seems like he wants to experience Jesus. But Herod, in his self-love, has exalted the gifts above the giver. He could really care less about Jesus. He could care less about God. All he wants to do is he wants to experience gifts. You think that we don't deal with that today? Think about our nation. Think about the Gospels that we combat against today. I said a minute ago, the boyfriend Jesus. The Jesus that just wants to come and to make us feel good because we're sensitive. That's not Jesus. That's your boyfriend. You know? Or we want to have this prosperity Jesus that's come to give us like the Hummer and the nice house. And so we pray to Him and we pretend that we're praying for a big house so we can be really hospitable. The reality is like you just want a big flat screen on a really big wall above your really big mantle. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. You're a liar and you're tricking yourself. Desiring to have gifts above the giver while sometimes it can seem to be good, in reality, that's going to send you to hell too. Because gifts are gifts that should lead us to the glory of God, not to the glory of you. And both of these will lead us to separation with God. As we read this text, it's funny because it seems like as we read that there's only one trial going on, right? It's the trial of Jesus. Because we see Pilate putting Jesus on trial and then we see Herod putting Jesus on trial. There's this trial and it all is centering around Jesus. Here's a great reverse in the story. (laughs) This is great. The reality is like there's a whole bunch of trials going on because Jesus is judge. And Jesus has Pilate on trial. The blazing eyes are looking into the heart of this man. Through his indifference, he sees right through it and he knows that Pilate doesn't really care. Jesus is looking at Herod. He sees through the desire of a miracle. He's on trial. Every one of us are on trial, friends. And unless we give our lives completely over to God, and we begin to see the blessings of this life all leading to the glory of the great King that is deserving of all of our worship and all of our praise, then all we are is indifferent and all we are is infatuated with ourselves. God desires us to be infatuated with Him. Not as our boyfriend, not just as our provider, but as our God and as our King. And we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, that Jesus is looking into the hearts of men. He sees our secrets. He's judging us. May you not leave tonight, another night, without being regenerated by the work of God, without being taken over in conversion without being justified in the way that only God can justify sin 
by taking your sin and seeing it as nailed to the cross with Christ and then taking the righteousness of Jesus and imputing it into your life so you can stand before God blamelessly and be freed from the bondage of sin. Do you want that tonight? Pray. Ask God to do it because He can. Let's pray. God, we love You. And Father, I pray that this message is not a message that we listen to flippantly, but God, it is a message that we take to heart. Not because it has been brought by man, but because it is brought by You in Your Holy Word. Father, I pray tonight that people will see the Gospel. And I pray that they will have a desire for God like they've never had before. Rid us of our indifference. Heal us of our fleshly desire for gifts above You. And God, make us new. Make us new. In Jesus' name.